2: Again, still Again. got a little bit. We got one more. Well, that's not correct. We actually have four more judges to go. Yeah, but three of them are kind of like a footnote. So we're going to talk about them, and then we'll jump into to Samson. And
1: so yeah, we have yeah we have three footnotes. And we have Samson, and then we have the Levite.
2: Yeah, and his concubine. So yeah,
1: Whew. that's a. I mean, we've already had a guy killing his own daughter. Right. And it, I don't know if it's gets worse necessarily it's more of just a lateral move
2: well it's it's worse in that it just blows up across the nation where with Jephthah at least it was kept in his own household so I mean aside
1: from those 42,000 people he killed
2: oh this is true so and this is why it's such a mess the whole book is a big freaking mess that just should leave us with our jaws hanging on the floor Yeah. And and that's the purpose of the book.
1: Well, it, uh, well, yeah, because it's it's to tell us what happens when you abandon, uh, the authority that God put in place, right? And
2: and when you fail to challenge unjust and unworthy authority. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So, well, and and uh, and now we see that you know, uh, politically here in judges. Mm-hmm. But I think I mean, really, if you want to extrapolate that into into what's practical, it's like when we abandon the Bible, right? <laughs> and God's. Authority, what he's told us to follow, when we start we,
2: we, doing what's right in our own eyes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Then we're going to, we're going to mess it up. Yeah. So, when we
2: start pulling out individual verses and saying, I like this one better than that one. Yeah. And I do.
1: <laughs> I like certain verses more than others. And in fact, there's, I mean, I don't know, there's a whole lot in, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we're learning that's very interesting, a lot of stuff that's actually quite encouraging whenever you actually break it down. But I don't know that I could say necessarily like. A lot of what I read in Judges. Right. So that's, I mean...
2: <laughs> well, it's it's too reflective I, I, of where we are today. And I think as I've been going through that, that's been this whole book, I've been coming back to, I see points of contact with today's culture.
1: Well, I see points of contact with, today, with today's culture and I see it with all kinds of culture. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's humanity. Yeah. And so it's not just... Uh, today's culture. I mean, it could be last century's culture. I mean, this is true. It it just depends on who's wearing which hat.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think we've got to remember too, that people aren't necessarily worse today than they were in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just have the internet. And so, you know, it's easier to bring all of these atrocities to the forefront each and every day Mm -hmm. and have them slung into our face where I think in earlier times, you could ignore it if it wasn't happening in your hometown or to your family directly mm-hmm. you didn't have to confront it and right
1: yeah if, if as long as we're getting rain and and the animals are mm-hmm. watered and the crops are growing well and then I, it's good life you know that's that's basically what the ancient culture and was and
2: i think every day you know i get on the internet and there's like this this call to action you know i'm supposed to protest this or get mad about that or be offended because and,
1: and and quite frankly anymore i'm just kind of mad about the stuff i've been told i'm supposed to be mad i'm, I'm, I'm mad about being told what i'm supposed to be mad about right. and and quite and honestly half of it is like no yeah we that might not be a good thing but
2: but it, but it could be worse how exaggerated are yeah, you portraying yeah, it yeah. as being <laughs>
1: right. and so you know and i hate i hate to sound callous like that but there are certain things it's kind of it's like that's just kind of life we just have to deal with it
2: well, not to get too real, I mean, but whenever somebody who's posted something on Facebook that they're upset about and angry over and, you know, I just heard how they posted a, or read a post where they were giddy about how rude they were to somebody, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time taking it seriously. Right. So, right. you know, yes, we are getting to to share some great information with the internet. I don't think it's an evil invention. I think it can be used for evil. Mm-hmm, but. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we are really exposing our flaws as humanity with it all the time. Oh, and yeah. so, um, you know, I think we need to be careful in how we use that tool. And so I think we can find even surprisingly guiding principles in the Bible on how best to use the tool of the Internet and social media. Would it so, be
1: maybe do unto others?
2: That's yeah, I think that's you a good start. Done unto you. <laughs> that's a good start. Maybe start a podcast. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah so yeah so we're full of opinions this weekend we are (laughs) we should record a special i i think that's on the agenda (laughs) so (laughs) anyhow so getting back to the book of judges because i know that's why everyone's here um wrapping up chapter 12 verses 8 through 15 we have these three judges uh ibzan elon and abdon and All of them are presented with very little personal detail. They have no military conquest. There's no personal drama for the writers to really tell us about. Um, So I'm just going to kind of run through them. And because there's not a lot to say. I just couldn't pull a lot out of it. Um, Ibzan was of Bethlehem. This is probably the same Bethlehem as the city of David where Jesus was born. Because there are two in the Old Testament. But we think that this is where this one was located. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and we have a description of how he sent his daughters off, and he brought in wives for his sons. That seems... Well, it's random. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, I think the point, and several commentators think that the point of this is, one, he is still keeping with the cultural norms of his day, because this is, would be expected practice. And the fact that he had 30 sons is the proper number of sons for a king, mm-hmm. not a god. Remember, that's important. Remember back to Gideon. Um, and it's also a good contrast with Jephthah, who had one daughter. And so we're we're seeing that there again, that that flipping and the reversal that happens so often in judges. And the other possibility of what's going on here is he's expanding his influence. Mm-hmm. And I mean and Solomon does this, I mean obviously, with yeah. his many wives and you know, and it backfires on Solomon. So we can possibly read those two stories in concert. I think we'd have a real hard time making too big of a connection with it, but it does make you, um, think about that. Now, the important thing that's not mentioned is it doesn't say that he's marrying his children off to Canaanites.
1: Right. It says outside his clan.
2: Right. So there's this indication that he is at least doing that much. Mm -hmm. So that's really all we know about him. He, he ruled, he died. He was buried in his hometown. Uh, Elon, the Zebulunite, led Israel for 10 years. He's, He's died, died and was buried. buried with the lands of his tribes. Uh, Abdon was the son of Hillel. Uh, this is not the same Hillel for anybody who's done any kind of... Uh, Rabbinic
1: ser- research. Yeah, yes. Different this, guy.
2: This guy was way, way before the famous rabbi Hillel. Um So he has 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode donkeys. So we still, we have that number of 70 donkeys. yeah. So we're seeing maybe that there is a progression to trying to reclaim some power like Gideon. But again, it's speculation. And we're kind of have, there's some merit to the idea because we did see that in Gideon's story. Mm-hmm. But and it is in the same book, and when you're when you're reading scriptures to contrast, you always want to start with how things are used within that same book, right, and then you move to the same writer and then you move to the the Old Testament or New testament respectively, and then to um outside sources like second temple lit mm-hmm. so there there's a progression that you need to follow in order to or other ancient literature, yeah like
1: like even some contemporary literature with the judges right. or the or
2: Canaanite, like you know, like yeah. the, the Mesha Str- Stella that we brought up in the,
1: yeah. uh, or on the, the Ugaritic text.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so that that's kind of um, a standard formula that most people follow. It's what I follow um, because, you know, obviously the Bible has the most, the most weight. Um, it's significant. None of these men are identified as saviors. They're, they're, they're rulers. They're, they're judges. So the question really becomes is, did Israel need saving during this time?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, or is God just continuing in the silence that he promised before the Jephthah story? Um, there's so little information about these guys that, of course, the rabbis had to fill in with some fun stories. Okay. So I'm just going to share one. Of course and we have to share at least one. Just one. And, and I picked this one because uh, I think... Everybody's familiar with the name of Boaz. sure. And Boaz, of course, husband of Ruth, he's going to show up in the very next book if you're reading the Christian Bible, mm-hmm. not the Jewish Bible. Sure. So um, it's said that because Isban had these, these many sons that and Boaz had no children. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Isban is seen as Boaz. Okay. I, I believe it's the same person. And because Manoak, and Manoak is going to be the father of Samson. Didn't have any children. Ibzan or Boaz never invited Manoak to the weddings because he didn't think he was going to get invited back to a wedding in return. And because of this, God allowed all of his children to be killed. and And Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, born to Ruth, was actually not born until after his death. And so, you know, it's, it's one of these weird little connections, probably has no bearing in reality. Mm-hmm. But rabbis don't like unanswered questions about the Bible. And they like to insert things that could possibly fill in the blanks. And sometimes it's helpful because it is built on cultural tradition. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe there is an ancient understanding of the text that wasn't specifically written down, but sometimes it's not. And you, you just kind of have to go through all this with a grain of salt. Yep. And so... I see,
1: that, I don't really know that that's even helpful. That's, yeah.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> what, what lesson do we teach other than, you know, you should always invite people to your wedding, which being invited to a wedding in the Hebrew culture was huge. Right. Uh, There's actually a saying, uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, that, you know, if you don't invite me to your wedding, I'm not even going to show up at your funeral or something along those lines, hmm. that being part of that was was very significant. Well, we I mean,
1: figure when you figure the emphasis that they put on family, there's yeah, there's
2: well, and no it, doubt. Well, and then you begin to realize why it's so important that Jesus first miracles at a wedding, mm-hmm. and so you know all of this kind of plays in where you know today I think a lot of times I get an invitation to a wedding, unless it's somebody I really love, I'm kind of like really I <laughs> I don't want to go set through a wedding. You don't uh, want to have
1: to go buy a toaster,
2: <laughs> right? Oh yeah, you got the toaster, I, I had to go with the blunder. So. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow. So that's it. We we've got these judges. There's silence. There's no mention of God really. And the point, I think, and and I'm not the only one, is that God's silence is supposed to kind of be overwhelming at this point. Mm-hmm. He he's not shown up in Jeff the story. He hasn't shown up with these other three judges. And then Boom, you earned to judges thirteen and in Judges thirteen, we've got the story of Samson.
1: It's one of our favorite Bible
2: stories. Yeah, because God shows up. Yeah. And now that should tell you something as as uh, Bible readers, we like it when God shows up. So yeah.
1: most of the time, it's good news.
2: Right? Most of the time. <laughs> there, there's those
1: other times when it's not. so
2: yeah. So well, and I, I, because this is one of our favorite Bible stories. I'm kind of jumping into this with the assumption that people already know the story. So, I'm, right, you know, I'm not. There's not going to be any real cliffhangers or anything. But um, there's a lot of background work that goes into Samson. So we're going to be talking about the birth narrative today. But in order to understand understand the birth narrative, we're also going to have to look at some other significant information. Okay. So. But he, he is our last judge. There's more space devoted to Samson than any other judge in the book of Judges. Right. Uh, he's massively flawed to the point that if you go on the internet and you try to do a Google search of Samson, you're going to find more information trying to sanitize him than about <laughs> what's actually in the text. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, because, man, I tell you, this story is, I mean. I mean, to summarize, I mean, it's it's just, a, it's just a train wreck of a story about a guy who has anger issues and probably a sex addiction. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if you want to come right down to it.
2: Yeah, and strangely enough, since you bring up the sex addiction, just to throw this out here, even though that may have been part of his makeup, he's still not as abusive to women as a lot of the other judges in the Bible. Okay. So, I mean, he, he is, his treatment of women is he responds to them according to how they present themselves to the world as opposed to, to imposing ro- uh, roles upon them. And so. not
1: necessarily saying that's a good thing. Right. But it is. Yeah. I but, mean, it, It that, but it is how it went. Not mm-hmm. saying that it is a good thing. Yeah. Not saying it's a good thing, <laughs> but that is how it played out.
2: Right. Right. Uh, I felt and, I should clarify. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that, I mean, that's kind of an interesting distinction that he would, he would do that. So, uh, you know, Samson's story is one massive reversal from all the other judges. Um, he's the only judge where we have a birth described. Mm-hmm. We don't have that with anyone else. Uh, his birth narrative really serves as his call. You know, and God raised up a, a judge. That doesn't happen because it's, it's part of the birth mm-hmm. narrative itself. He's a Nazarite. He's one of only two men in the entire Bible who are lifelong Nazarites. Uh, we're going to talk about what that would mean. Uh, he never summons an army, not once. He right. doesn't lead them into battle. He, all of his accomplishments are personal; none of them are national. Right? Um, he does judge in, he does judge Israel for a certain length of time, but he doesn't judge in peace. And he's always separated from his his countrymen. Okay. He's never really integrated into Israel as a nation. Uh, he he lives an exceptionally Sinful life, and we're going to talk about what some of those sins were. Uh, he spends more time with the Philistines, with the enemy, than he does with the Israelites. Right. So there's a that's a huge tip off. Something's wrong here. Uh, his story doesn't follow the established pattern of any of the other judges because with the other ones, you have whoops, you have the um, apostasy, mm-hmm. you have the oppression, you have the cry, and then the deliverer. Now, in this one, you can have apostasy, and you have no cry from the the oppressor, but God still sends a deliverer. So right there, the fact that the the pattern's been broken right off the bat should clue you in. This is going to be a different story, okay? And so he's also only going to partially deliver the the country, not fully deliver the country. So we kick off in verse one. And I love it because you can almost hear the writer sigh. <laughs> again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, it's, it's just like, here we go again. And he doesn't even explain what the evil is. We're just expected to remember. By this point, if you haven't
1: figured out what evil is, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to do.
2: He, <laughs> uh, well, and that's the thing. Evil is serving other gods and intermarrying with the Canaanites. Right. In case anybody out there has forgotten. Um, So, and then the verse continues. So the Lord delivers them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this is the third time that the Philistines are identified as an enemy. The first time was actually Shamgar. Back in chapter three, verse 31, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Right. And then in God's speech in chapter 10, verse seven, he identifies them. And, but we've kind of forgotten about them because we had this whole interlude with the Ammonites. So now they're, they're cropping back up. Yep. Now, the Philistines, they're sea people. Um, they, they arrived in Canaan uh, through Cyprus and Crete. Mm-hmm. And originally they were going to attack Egypt, but Ramesses Ramses III defeated them and sent them to Canaan, settled them in the cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod. These are going to be important in Samson's story, and okay. so we have outside sources confirming that the Philistines were in these cities. Okay, uh, Ramesses hired these men as mercenaries uh, after he had defeated them, and the, the thing is, they they were powerful enough to devastate the Hittites.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you study the Hittites, you know that these guys they were fierce, They're pretty advanced for their time. Yeah, they they really were, and so for the For the Philistines to be able to come in and displace the Hittites, this is telling you that the, this is not a nation to be trifled with. right first uh, Samuel eight tells us the Philistines were probably the reason that the people demanded a, a king, that they needed to get rid of them. So this is why specifically a king was asked for it was the Philistines were causing them problems, right. And they're going to continue to be a problem until the reign of King David. so they're going to be on the scene for a while. Yep. Now, the other thing about the Philistines is they're highly cultured for this time. We have archaeological evidence that they've got great artwork and pottery. They've got sophisticated wine presses. They've got, uh, there's writings that they have about making wine. They have complicated architecture. Hmm. Um, we know that they were connected to the Greeks. Right. Okay, now this is important. Um, Now, I'll just back up a little bit as far as like some of these connections. Troy fell. The city of Troy from the Iliad and the Odyssey fell in in 1183. Sure. It was at this point that we began getting these tales of these wandering heroes through the Canaanite region. Uh, BC. BC. Sorry, yes. (laughs) Uh, They're wandering through the Canaanite region having these great adventures. Think Odysseus. Yep. And this was the same... This was all happening during the time of the judges. And there is this connection with the Philistines being those Greeks that were making these journeys. Mm-hmm. So when you think of a Philistine, if you can put Odysseus, your, your image of him and of the kind of man he was, into your head, that's more accurate than this uncultured barbarian than we tend to think of. I mean, it's a cultural insult, insult to say... Somebody's a Philistine today. Right. But that's not true. We know that from archaeology, that's not true. They were actually the height of culture for Canaan. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and this is important because, yeah, you know, the Greeks, they're the height of culture
1: mm-hmm. at
2: this point. Right. They, they're quick to adopt any technological advances that they don't make themselves. And we have no reason to think that the Philistines didn't bring these kinds of mindsets into Canaan with them. Right. So... When we stop and think about just a few decades before this, the Israelites are living in caves. Mm-hmm. How appealing is the Philistine culture to them at this point?
1: Yeah, what are you doing with all those sticks there? Putting them together to build some kind of shelter?
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I. When you've got somebody who comes in and has weaponry and tools that are literally hundreds of years advanced from where you are. You want to be their friend. And this seems to be what's happening with the Israelites and the Philistines. Mm-hmm. There, there seems to be the, this cohabitation that both parties are totally okay with. And we see this specifically when, when Samson takes that Philistine bride. The, the, it's her parents who put on the banquet. Mm-hmm. Her parents who bring in companions for Samson and when samson and his bride that it doesn't work out things kind of go south and we'll get into all of that the dad says hey here's my other daughter so the philistines wanted to include samson in their families and when samson says hey there's a problem here and he rises up against the philistines the tribe of judah goes what are you doing we got a good thing leave us Mm -hmm. alone Mm -hmm. so all the evidence points to the idea that the Israelites wanted what the Philistines had, and they were willing to settle and adapt and accommodate, mm-hmm. so that they could participate in it.
1: Yeah, and there's just there's so many parallels to what's <laughs> going on in the future with that. I mean, I mean, uh, and we can get into that here in a little bit, but yeah, I, I want to see where you're going here. But I was just when. When uh, you were talking about the the Philistines saying, "Hey, we got this good thing going," it kind of reminds me of occupied uh, Israel in the time of Jesus. Because when there's news of the Messiah on the horizon, it, I think it's in Matthew somewhere. It says all of all of Jerusalem was troubled. Yeah, it was a Herod was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why would they be? Why would why would the Israelites? Why would uh, the Jewish people be troubled when the Messiah is coming? Because they know. That in political, you know, upheaval,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you're gonna you're gonna face some hard times.
2: Why upset the status and, quo? And yeah, well, yeah, exactly. If so we're doing okay, that's
1: kind of what I thought of when you mentioned that judo was, uh, was getting like, on to. Hey, was well, Samson? Whoa, whoa! Let's not upset the, the <laughs> well,
2: neighbors. And um, the, this is actually why the Samson story, even today, um, in Zionism, uh, with the idea of. Israel need to become, you know, being the nation it is today, and how much land are they supposed to occupy? And do they share with the Palestinians, aka Philistines, or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of political movements have picked up on the story and just run with it. And said so this is our justification for fighting back and saying, no, we need a unified Israel. There's not going to be a two-party state. And, and mm-hmm. so, and, and I, I don't want to get into all of that, but the story is still very much being played out. And uh, to the point that in the uh, Israeli army, there's some of the the fighting groups within that I, are called like Samson's boxes. Mm-hmm. So um, very much uh, an influential story, and with you know being used for all the political power and play it can be given. Right. So, uh, but you know the the main thing is they seem to be so at peace and that lack of a cry seems to be indicative of how at peace they were. Cause they've either gone, Hey, we got a good deal. We want to live with it. Or they've given up all hope.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: There's really no in between. They are not expecting uh, deliverance. So I think, and I, I, there's a lot of support for this idea in many commentaries that Samson's role is not to lead that army and not to fight this deci- device, sorry, decisive battle. Right. He is to create a rift. His, his purpose and goal is to stir up trouble.
1: And see, I'm, I'm seeing the parallel there <laughs> where, where Jesus says, I don't come to bring peace, but a sword. Right. I mean, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm seeing all the, the foreshadowing here that, yeah, when we start breaking it down.
2: And that's the thing. It's because you know that story and you know those passages that you can see this connection. And this is why I keep telling people, just keep reading your Bible. Read it again. Read it again. Mm-hmm. Because eventually it's going to start jumping out and you're going to start seeing these things. And if you consider that the Philistines did bring all of this Greek thought with them, you really begin to understand why they ha- there had to be that separation. Right. Um, You know, part of where Greek thought takes us, part of what it it brings about in their society, we have infants left on the hillside to be exposed to the elements. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were gathered up for the sex trade by, you know, less than kind people. Uh, Women who had no voices and, and no rights within their society, so much so that to the point some of the skeletons of Greek women who are being dug up from this era are showing signs of being malnourished, even though they're coming from rich households. Hmm. Um, cities who practice ritualized homosexuality, ritualized si- suicide um, Alexander the Great he based his right to conquer all the world and how he treated the nations he conquered on Greek thought right so this none of this has any place. In, in God's kingdom, it, it could not be allowed to flourish in Israel. And Samson needed to happen or something needed to happen because the people weren't willing to rise up and do what needed to be done to reclaim God's land for him.
1: Yeah, well, and, and so you were talking about, you know, with, with Greek culture and how, uh, you know, the, how corrupt it was, it, it puts a lot more weight onto Paul's words. Mm-hmm. And his mission, mm-hmm. uh, because especially when you think about, um, you know, he, he's, you know, basically God's redemption has come to all first to the Jew and then to the Greek, mm-hmm. and it's like
2: that, now they're being it, included, yeah, and, <laughs> and we're and,
1: having that reversal. And you kind of parallel that that Romans passage where he like lists all the terrible things and he says, "So such were some of you," right? Like these are the things you were redeemed from, and it kind of it fits in there with with that. Uh, with his writing
2: well and i think that we tend to romanticize the greek culture i mean we've obviously got some really great innovation and philosophies and thoughts that have come out of greek culture Mm -hmm. and but we've also got some things that have really hurt our culture yeah and so um you know they weren't always the sophisticates that we would like to think they were Right. And, you know, even, uh, is it Socrates, you know, he drank the hemlock juice and this was celebrated.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, that's again, counter to God's kingdom. We don't take life. We preserve life. Right. And, and unless there's no other option. So, uh, and this is what we're going to talk about with Samson. What, what were the options? Mm. And so anyway, back to verse two and it says a certain man, so Anytime you see that in the Bible, it's like once upon a time. Get ready; we're mm-hmm. starting into a new narrative uh, from Zora. Uh, and this Zora is a town that, because of its location, is simultaneously part of Dan and part of Judah. So it, it's both tribes kind of lay claim to it. And there's a long, complicated history that I'm not going to go into. But his name was Manoah. Uh, Manoah in English uh, built on the same root as Noah. It literally means resting place Okay, from the clan of the Danites. And this sets the tone for Samson's whole life. Who his parents are is not nearly as important as the land he's fighting for. Okay. Because the parents are going to fade into the background. And that after this great buildup that we're getting ready to go into. And we're specifically told that his wife is barren. And the writer's setting us up that the, the miracle that's getting ready to happen isn't going to happen within this man. It's going to be within the woman.
1: Right. Well, I mean, and how many stories, again, have we already heard about women who without children? It, and Precisely. And who are the women without children? They're mm-hmm. the ones who are going to bring some kind of deliverance, some kind of help. And we see that theme repeated. Yeah. And some kind of blessing. It's
2: Well, what's interesting about this is those women are named. This one isn't. So the writer is setting you up. You, you think when you read through this first verse of the story, she's not going to be all that important. Right. Because she doesn't get a name. So, you know, Menach is going to be the important one. He gets a name. Mm-hmm. But in the end, he completely subverts your expectation and she becomes the primary player. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least until Samson grows up. So as the story continues, um, verse three, an angel of the Lord appears to the woman and says, behold. You are barren, well, duh, uh, and have not born children. You shall conceive and bear a son. Now, we've already gone over several times the angel of the Lord is God embodied in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Now, we haven't seen him since Gideon's call. So this is going to tell us we need to be thinking of Gideon while we read this account. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually um, hit my next set of notes, so we're going to skip that. But the matriarchs, oh, part? sorry, uh, yes, it's the matriarchs who who are not who don't have kids. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, here's the here's the differences because I've got this now. She's not distressed. There's no record of her being upset. She's not had a kid, right? Uh, she's not praying for a child. She's not doing anything to try to facilitate a child. Now compare that to Rachel, who's. Going out and trying to get Leah's mandrakes and stealing the maybe stealing the fertility gods. And, uh, you know, Rebecca who asked Isaac to pray for her. And, you know, Rachel actually goes to Jacob, Give me a child. Mm -hmm. This woman's doing none of this. Now, if we compare her to the matriarchs, we should be shocked. Okay. If we compare her to the state of the nation, we should expect it.
1: Okay. That makes sense.
2: I mean, yeah. (laughs) And that's. That's the thing, because in this culture, children were expendable. And so why, why would you want to have something you're just going to wind up sacrificing to a, an idol? Um, you know, th- there's no need to grieve about something like that. The other distinction is, in all of the matriarch story, the promise for a child is given to of the father. Mm-hmm. In this story, the angel visits the mother. Right. And matter of fact, the only matriarch that God speaks to directly is Rebecca, and that's when she's pregnant with Jacob and Esau, and these kids are going to be the death of me, and Mm -hmm. she's having a hard time, and God tells her there's two nations within you. Right. And when you take this into account and realize that the person reading this story for the first time would have automatically been thinking of the matriarchs. This kind of hints at who Samson's going to be. He's not going to be a set of twins, but he's going to be a person who's torn between two nations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And he's never really going to belong to, to either one. And the struggle really is not between him and a brother. It's just within himself. Now that's interesting. Yeah. That's... I picked up on that one myself. <laughs> a single
1: parallel and contrast. Uh, that's... Makes a lot of sense. I can see
2: that this whole story. I'm telling you. Uh, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. If you don't hear Isaiah seven fourteen in that, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, mm-hmm. and his name shall be Emmanuel. I. It, we need to be paying attention. This story's got something to teach us not only about the identity of, of Samson, but also about the identity of Christ. And so, so
1: yeah. Sorry, I was, I was laughing because um the. Uh, Every time you said behold, and every time I, someone says a lot of the verses that say behold mm-hmm. a lot, I think of there's somebody took a passage, like took all the passages, not all of them, but a large number of the passages and all of them that say behold and replaced it with look, buddy. <laughs> I <laughs> and, think I've seen that. It's been a long time. Don't put a link to that, but it's like every time I think about that.
2: Pretty much. It cracks me up. Yeah, Pay attention to this. I've got something important to tell you. And what's being told here. To Manoak, uh, Mrs. Manoak, since we don't have a name, we're, she's being told, your son's going to begin to deliver your, the people from the Philistines. Now, contrast that with Jesus, who completes the deliverance from mm-hmm. all enemies. Yeah. So we, we have that great little play on the two parallel accounts. Uh, verse four, the angel says, in the ESV, it says, therefore, be careful. Mm-hmm. I really prefer block he, he leans towards this translation. Now, guard yourself. Because it's more mm-hmm. active. She's going to be called to, to play an active participating role in this. And really Samson's success is going to depend on her obedience. Mm-hmm. Talk about a warning to parents right there. Your child's success is going to depend on your obedience. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah, none whatsoever. I mean, no, that's, that can't be a blanket statement because you're always going to have a child who's going to run off and join the circus or worse. And you know, people make their own choices, but I think if we as parents take that to heart—that our children's success does depend on the you know the example we set for them and uh, the Mm -hmm. way we serve the Lord—I think that's going to make us more sensitive to to how we live. I Doug Overmeyer was actually talking about that on uh, Change My Mind, Mm -hmm. and so our other podcast you can find on Raven Creek, and how he had to—I know shameless plug. But no, he was talking about how his understanding of spiritual warfare really uh, grew as he tried to help his daughter, yep. and how taking care of her and making the home safe for her really did depend on his obedience. So, um, just it's it's interesting. It's still a principle in play. Yeah. So the the angel commands her to do three things. Okay, so no wine or strong drink. Mm-hmm eat nothing unclean mm-hmm. and no razor shall touch the child's head. And the reason he gives is that he's going to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Right. Okay. So this is where we get to pause and look at what a Nazarite is. Yeah. I mean,
1: we I mean, we've all, we all have kind of this basic idea of, of the, the Nazarite vow is, is vowing to abstain from certain things and, or participate in a certain way of behavior for the sake of fulfilling a vow, or, or, but we don't really talk about all of the the details of this. We think a lot of times when we talk about it, we we talk about just enough to get to help us understand what's up with Samson, or um, who's the other one.
2: Uh, um. Well, I mean, Paul. At one point, uh, we assume we assume the vows kind of it's iffy kind of on iffy. That,
1: but we we do assume that it's a Nazarite vow, and then we and also then James, have James.
2: James, refresh my memory. Was,
1: I believe James, wasn't he? Naz, didn't he take a Nazarite vow for a while?
2: Got me. I'd have uh, to look at that. Was,
1: I'd have to double check, but I thought... I now, thought I do I know removed.
2: Samuel. Oh, we have reason to think that Samuel was. First Samuel one eleven, because um, his mother vowed never to let a razor touch his head. And then every year until he went to the temple, Elkanah, uh, Hannah's husband, would pay the price for his vow. So uh, we believe that Samuel was also a lifelong Nazirite. Interesting. But there's not a lot of Nazarites talked about in the scripture. And we're going to talk about why they were so rare. Okay. Because this is not normal. There's nothing about a Nazarite's life that is normal. So the, the basic commands are number six. So if you want to look it up, number six, um, we're, we're basically told no wine, no strong drink. Nothing made of grapes, so that includes seeds. I mean, the in the, the Bible gets this specific: no s- seeds, no grape skins, no vinegars, you no raisins. Nothing to do with grapes. It's just off the menu. No haircuts or shaving during this time of the vow. Now the okay. rabbis got into this really long debate. Uh, you can't, They said you couldn't brush your hair, you couldn't style it, you couldn't do anything that might actually accidentally cause the hair to fall out. Right. Now you could scratch your head if you were very careful, and so uh, you know you, you got to
1: not make you. You had to do your best to not cause any hair to come out of your head,
2: right? And I love how the rabbis always get so specific. It's just it's awesome. Um, then number six also says that you should have no contact with dead bodies, and this includes family members. The Bible only covers human dead. Mm-hmm the rabbis extended it to cover the dead bodies of animals and thus the Nazarites were forced into veganism. And, right. you know, and when you're living in a culture where one of your biggest, you know, resources is cattle or sheep, mm-hmm. this makes things very difficult because this means you can't even wear shoes. Right. Um, and which might explain why, what is it? John the Baptist was barefoot. Uh, does <laughs> it say that? So anyway, uh, but Basically, it boils down to the same requirements as being a high priest. Now, unless otherwise specified, it was assumed that the usual term of a Nazarite vow was 30 days. Okay. So you know, usually for a specific set of time, it wasn't overwhelming. That's doable. Yeah. Men and women were both allowed to be Nazarites, and they were respected to the point that uh, The rabbis concluded if a woman of any tribe said she wanted to be high priest for a day and took a Nazarite vow so that it could be so, no one could stop her. So think about that. I mean, high priest, that's like the most important position in Mm -hmm. ancient Israel. Now, exactly what a person was supposed to do during this time is anybody's guess. We we have no record of, you know, other than don't eat these things, don't drink these things, and don't cut your hair. Mm. What what did this mean? Now, because Samuel was working at the temple, it's believed that he was supposed that he kind of set the pattern of some kind of active service to Mm -hmm. God during this time, that it isn't just sitting at home contemplating great truths, but you're actually doing something right well it it seems
1: to me that it's uh it's kind of you're you're setting yourself up to you know you're not touching anything unclean Mm -hmm. you're you know going very it seems to me that it it would be like i'm so ready to do what i need to do that i'm going to be I, i i'm never going to be unfit to go into the temple i think is what it sounds like
2: possibly
1: in a way so
2: possibly And there is that, that idea because there is, it's the same restrictions that are of the high priest. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Amos 2, 11 through 12. um, Do you have that? I don't. uh, It connects it with the idea of prophets. And so the, you know, prophets were highly um, um, esteemed in this culture. So... Do you got it there.
1: Yeah, I've got it here. It says, "And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some for young, uh, some of your young men for Nazarites." It is. Uh, is it not? Sorry, I haven't. Read, I, I'm terrible at reading out loud. Let's try <laughs> I mean, this again. It's small print in that Bible. It is, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? Declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy.
2: Okay. So Amos connects them, and the idea, Webb says that this suggests that maybe these Nazarites were um, dedicated to a holy war against outsiders, that you would take a Nazarite vow before engaging in one of God's wars. Okay. He also says that it's possible that the school of priests mentioned in 2 Kings, that these were all Nazarites. So that's, I mean, those are possibilities. Uh, It's not specifically spelled out in the Bible. But part of the reason for this is because if you look at number six, the last half of that chapter, and actually a little more, is dedicated to how to conclude a vow and and what you do upon completion. Um, It's quite extensive. You've got, okay, a burnt offering. Mm Mm-hmm which is a lamb. Mm -hmm. You've got a sin offering, which is specifically a ewe Mm -hmm. lamb, a peace offering, which is a ram lamb. Mm -hmm. Say that three times fast. Uh, You have a basket of unleavened bread. You have unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You have a grain offering. You have a drink offering. And you have to shave your head. And when the peace offering is being burnt, it's added to the fire. Right. So, okay, it's pretty restrictive. I mean, that's what? One, two, three three lambs Mm -hmm. on top of everything else, this is not a small thing to bring to the tabernacle or temple. Right. And the problem is when the when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there's no way for the vow to be completed now. Right. So this means that since the time right after Jesus died, there hasn't been very many Nazarites at all. There's been a handful. Because you can't complete the vow. Right. If you take you're, the vow...
1: You're done. You have to be one for life then.
2: Yeah. And because of that, there's not a lot of information about that time, what you're doing while you are a Nazarite.
1: Ver- versus a lot of the other
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, traditions that we have a lot of detail about because they're still being practiced.
2: Right. I mean, we okay, can that, look that at... That makes sense. Yeah. Because we if we look at the Passover feast or we look at, at Yom Kippur, I mean, like you said, these are still being practiced, but... Uh, the fact that you you cannot do this now is is really what leads to it now, the other thing that plays into this is in the Talmud, the rabbis have a very, very low view uh, of the the Nazarite okay because um when we're going to, we'll get into that, but before we do that because i'm I'm gonna get lost, there's so much information. The purpose of growing the hair that's where we're going to, we're gonna start out with uh. Now, I've always been told it was to serve as a visible sign that this person is a Nazirite.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: The average human's hair grows half an inch a month. Right. If the average Nazirite vow is 30 days, that makes no sense. Right. I mean, absolutely. There's no way... That serves as a visible sign. Well,
1: and, and now uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you shave your head at the beginning of the vow and then again at the end? Yes. Okay. And if somebody, so, so you're only going to have a half inch of hair. Yeah. By the time it's all done.
2: Yeah, and so it's, and considering short haircuts were not that uncommon, contrary to popular belief, when you're dealing with things like fleas and lice and mm, you know sand, sand, yeah, short hair was yes. actually very practical. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so,
1: maintaining long hair back in the day. Had it's a to pain been. today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I used to have long hair and I know mm-hmm. it got to be a pain at, at some point.
2: So. Yeah. So I mean, it, it, that just, it doesn't make sense. Now, if we look at number six, verses nine through 12, and we, I'm not going to read that, but it describes what happens if, and this is significant to the hair thing. It describes what happens if someone suddenly just drops dead next to a Nazarite. And it specifically states that it defiles the Nazarite's consecrated head. And so he's supposed to shave on the day of his cleansing, again seven days later, offer a sacrifice, and start the vow all over again. So the, what it's saying is that the defilement lands on the hair. Okay. The hair almost seems to be, everything I'm reading, it's like it's acting like some supernatural filter, some kind of covering that is going to absorb all the evil so it doesn't land on the person themselves. And then at the end of this time, it can be taken away and removed. Hmm. And, you know, if you look at Romans 4, 7 through 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Now, Paul is quoting Psalm 32:1, and this psalm is focusing on a deliverer and the importance of confession uh, to, in order to rid oneself of sin and to be forgiven of sin. Okay. Um, so this idea that you could remove you could have this covering that absorbs sin. And that sin can be removed from the person is actually, I see foreshadowing of being covered with the blood and mm-hmm. having that, that sin where it's, yes, there are consequences, but there's no condemnation. Right. And so uh, that's, that's the significance of, to, that I'm seeing in it. Okay. Now, as such, this is part of what leads into that low view of Nazarites by the rabbis and the sages. Because... We've always been told that to be a Nazarite, and I know I, I say we, this is what I heard growing up, okay. yeah. that a Nazarite had the six hundred and thirteen laws of the Torah mm-hmm. plus three more. Right. There's an argument, and I actually I can see this. I see the sense in this. That no, they only had three. They had freed themselves from the six hundred and thirteen to only observe those laws that are prescribed in number six. Right. And so they don't have to submit. To the dietary restrictions, they don't have to submit themselves to the sexual laws, the the societal laws, any of the, the on laws of impurity and uncleanness, and these are laws that were customarily broken during war, right? And so, by taking a Nazarite vow, then the warriors were freed up to do what was necessary hmm. and be able to to prevail. Okay. So, yeah, uh, and. To free yourself of those laws would really make sense when you think of the idea that the sages and the rabbis don't like it, considering all of their writings really focus on the law. On the law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's kind of this idea that there's a greater act of faith being expressed here that the Nazarite in saying, God will still love and save me while keeping only these specific laws as opposed to the whole, as opposed to the whole of the law mm-hmm. requires more faith. And it demonstrates that salvation isn't an act of works, it really is a faith. Hmm. And so someone who takes this vow would have to be okay with taking that risk. And the support for this this idea is found again in number six, Yeah, because why else would you have to offer a guilt offering and a sin offering? Why would you have to restore peace between you and God? And so this seems to be... This assumption that sin was involved of those periods of being a Nazarite. Now, when you've plugged this into Samson and who he was and all the things that his life is entailing, is he being a good Jew, or is he being a good Nazarite?
1: I mean, is he being a bad Jew or a good Nazarite? Is that
2: the (laughs) yeah? Well, and that's these are the questions. I mean, yeah, because you can read it both ways, and there's been attempts to do it. And you know there's, there's this view that when you're a Nazarite, you're no longer a Jew. Now only a Jew could become a Nazarite, mm-hmm. but when you become a Nazarite, you're no longer a Jew. You aren't part of the nation. Hmm. And Samson's whole life, he's never part of the nation. We see that very clearly. He, he kind of swings by, has these brief little interactions, but then he goes right back to the Philistines, right. so there it's a very complex issue, and, you know, a lot of this. There's debate both ways. I'm not saying that this is 100% how it, how it was, but there's reason to think that there's this could be right an explanation. So, now, here's the question I'm going to ask you, put you on the spot. Oh, great. Could Samson's mama cut her hair? Well,
1: you mean before he was born?
2: Before he was born.
1: Well, I... My first inclination is, why did I mean, does it matter?
2: Oh uh, Well, the rabbis so, thought so. This was a matter of debate. Of, of course the rabbis <laughs> thought so.
1: So what, what did they come up with? Because I bet you want to tell us. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah I am. They, they actually, they said she could because uh, all the other laws had to do with what came into her body as opposed to what was coming out of her body. Okay. So what she took in, and we know this is true now. Probably where I would have landed. But. Yeah. I mean, Well, you just got to think through it. I mean, you, that's the whole applying logic to the Bible that uh, we talk about. Yeah. I didn't want to waste that
1: much showtime. <laughs> right.
2: I will refrain from the insult that I could offer there. But anyway, uh, so she, but the, the hair is coming out of her. Well, and then we go back to Jesus teaching you, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out. And right. so, you know, th- this idea of what goes in and coming out and. If we wanted to try to make a scientific textbook out of the Bible, which I highly advise against, (laughs) don't do it. (laughs) This is the first time that we see that, hey, what the mamas ingest actually does impact the babies. Right. And it's being acknowledged. And so, um you know know, we here you
1: have it in a spiritual sense. Precisely. Whereas you were seeing it in a physical
2: way of things. And I, I but this, this idea of him being a Nazarite set apart to engage in this holy war, I think there's also some support here in uh, Judges, because if you notice, Mrs. Minowak, um, she she has this perception of her son. When she goes back to her husband and she talks to him, she omits the statement that the angel made about her being barren. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, he already knows that. He doesn't need to know that. No need <laughs> to bring
1: that up again. <laughs>
2: right. But then she she adds to what the angel says, because the angel says he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb, mm-hmm. and she says from the womb until his death. And so I think that's a clue that she understands that her son was built for destruction. I, I, I see that kind of motherly premonition kind of going on here.
1: Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, she says from his birth until his death, but... She's, you know, she's adding to what the angel said. Mm-hmm. Is this foreshadowing about adding and a warning about adding to what God promises?
2: Well, I mean, I think there's definitely we can see the connection back to Genesis three with with Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she added to to God's law there, but I'm I also see. I see Mary in this and he, she treasured these things and pondered them in her her heart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, she knew her son was, Mary knew her son was either destined for glory or death. I don't think she could have seen that it was both until it actually occurred. Uh, But I think Mrs. Minowak, I think she's kind of getting some glimmer of that. OK, yep. I that's I, that's what I'm reading, because she seems to have it together. And as we go through the rest of the story, she seems to understand things that her husband just does not get.
1: Yeah. Which, uh, by the way, you know, if she has it together and you know, when we get into Samson, <laughs> sometimes sometimes you just have a kid that goes bad. <laughs> right. So Right. So, yeah.
2: Now, the, the thing is that even though he he goes wild and does things that he shouldn't have he was still a Nazarite because she was obedient. He was still able to be born a Nazarite. So he he had a chance and that's going to be a huge part of his story. He had a chance. So she goes back to her husband. She describes this visitor and we begin to, she begins to seem to understand as she's retelling it. It's like she's telling him the story and it's like, as she's saying the words, light bulbs are going off in her mind Mm -hmm. because she begins out and she says, um, Ish ha elchim." Uh, a man of God. Mm-hmm. So this can easily denote just a prophet. That was a normal title. Uh, but then as she, she moves on, she says, but he had the appearance of the Malak ha- Elohim, the, the angel of the Lord. So she, she changes her her language when talking to her husband. And it's at this point she realizes, I didn't ask his name.
1: Yeah, which is really funny. And what I, what I also find interesting is he had the appearance of the angel of the Lord, just like everyone's just supposed <laughs> to know what that looks like.
2: Well, that, that tells you something. That tells you that these stories that have been going on that are happening in Judges, she's heard them. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. had to have known the story of Gideon. She knew the story of, of when the angel of the Lord said, I'm done with you in, in chapter, I think was three, she, or chapter two. Um, she she had to have been paying attention Mm -hmm. and so the fact that she knows now that tells you something about the education of the women in israel and yeah Yeah. so and then even more so because she comes up with some more great theological points as we go on but i love Manoah, bless his little heart verse eight he prays to god and he says hey i want to see this man now He's claiming that this is so he can get instructions for how to raise the child. In reality, what's going on, he's saying, I don't believe my wife, or he's saying, why are you talking to her and not me? Right. So what's hilarious about this is in verse nine, God hears his prayer. He answers his prayer. And in, but instead of sending the angel of the Lord to Manoah, he sends the angel back to Mrs. Manoah. hmm and I, God's making a point here the, you need to listen to your wife. She's the one I've instructed. You're supposed to do what she tells you to do because it's what I told her to do. And so when she sees the angel, she runs and gets her husband. Now, of course, immediately I thought of the women at the tomb. Yeah. She, they've, they've seen the angel. It's time to go tell the good news to the guys. And the guys are like, Y'all have lost your mind, so we gotta go check it out for ourselves. Right. And that's exactly what Manoak is doing. And he, he... To, to be
1: fair to the <laughs> guys who are like, We gotta see this for ourselves. If you had witnessed the crucifixion, that's a pretty
2: But they didn't. Well the women did. They didn't. <laughs> Except for Fair John. enough.
1: <laughs> but I mean, yeah. You, if you've witnessed a crucifixion, right. Um that's a pretty outrageous claim. Yeah. No. So you know, to be fair to the guys on that one,
2: but you know, they they did. They went to that. Oh, it's just a bunch of hysterical women who are hallucinating, and it must be the hormones are going crazy again. But yeah, you know, and that's kind of what this guy's doing here. It's like I can't trust her to accurately tell me what God is telling her, and you know, there's a whole sermon series in that. But fair enough. <laughs> so, but he follows her back, and there's this. This is kind of the summation of his whole role in the story, because this whole story, he's trying to play catch up with her. He wants to be at the same place she's at and having the same experiences she is having. But the guy is just. He needs help. He needs help because when he sees the angel, he just begins by interrogating him. Are you the man who saw my wife? You know, this is not inviting and conducive to conversation. I you walk up to another guy. Are you the one who's been talking to my wife? I mean, usually that stops. Okay. Well.
1: Okay. So I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell's uh, religious history uh, (laughs) podcast, and they were. It was funny because he was talking about Jewish culture and how in in Jewish culture one of his neighbors moved to the U.S. from Israel, Uh and she was talking about how frustrating frustratingly polite Americans are compared (laughs) to the her neighbors. So to me, it's like, after, after listening to that and then hearing a you know, bunch of other stuff about just kind of Jewish culture, that it's just very in your face. Like, we don't have time. There's, you know, let's, <laughs> let's get on with this. Like
2: <laughs> Well, but at the same time, think about Abraham's response when the angels appeared at his, at his tent. He runs out to greet them and, I want to feed you. Let, let me yeah. provide you a meal. So when we when we compare it that way, Manoak he he's bordering on just flat out rude. Yeah, and and I love the angel. The angel's like he does do that whole. I don't have time. He's basically look. I told your wife, but let me repeat myself, please. You know, (laughs) there's no there's no kind of gracious kindness coming from the angel. It's very uh, there's kind of a shortness to it that. I, it, I was kind of shocked because I, I love the, the kind of the impatient, impatient nature of it when I'm reading through it, because Manoah bless it. Like I said, bless his heart. He, he just, he needs help. And after they have this exchange and he realizes he's not going to get any more information out of the angel, he says, let me feed you.
1: Mm-hmm. And, so the Are we going qu- back to trying to bribe God here? That's
2: well, that's the question. Is he, I mean, is he trying to wheedle some more information, or is it, did he realize he's being rude and is trying to correct it? And, you know, and we, we kind of begin to have these echoes of Gideon, where Gideon does feed the angel of the Lord when he appears, um, but we have some major differences. And Because the angel this time, he redirects Manoak and he says, you know, You're be- pretty much he's saying your behavior is unacceptable. I'm not going to eat your food. Mm-hmm. At this point, forget it. It, it. It's not happening. But if you want to offer an offering, a whole burnt offering, give it to God. Right. Because things can't be right between you and me until you get right with God. Mm-hmm. And things aren't right between Manoah and God, or Israel and God, and there's no unity. When you eat together in the Bible, it's because there's unity, mm-hmm. and there's no unity at this point. And the the offering is the first step, and so the angel is really, expl- you know, putting it in Manoah's face. Everything about you's off, dude.
1: <laughs> which is okay. Which is kind of funny. Okay, so I'm gonna okay. talk on this, and then. Uh. We probably need to find a place to wrap up soon. Okay. But the, um, no, it's kind of funny because in, uh, uh, in you know, in the Genesis story and later in the story with the concubine, we have people who go to places and they're detained mm-hmm. un, unduly. Yes. And here you have someone, in, but there were people they disagreed with, but they let themselves be detained. Yes, and now you have the angel of the Lord going. If it's someone you disagree with, here's what you should do. Right, and then you have that even repeated with Paul, or is it Paul it says if there's someone who's not doing, you know, someone calls himself a brother and is being sinful, someone who's not a mm-hmm. with God, don't yeah, eat Paul. with him. So no, first uh, you, Corinthians five, yeah, you kind of it, it, it's it's a subtle connection. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of that same deal. It's like if it's if it's not out of unity with the with God, get out of there
2: so basically, what you're saying is God is giving us a model of how to have healthy relationships and avoid toxic people from sucking us dry. Uh, yeah, boundaries. what a novel concept, yeah, no, I mean but that's that's really what's going on here the the angel saint you you, you if we can't have unity with God, you can't have unity with me. Mm -hmm. And now sometimes I think that's one of the things that we've fallen down with as Christians is people who call themselves Christians and we're going, Oh, but we've got to love and accept everyone loving and accepting everyone does not mean that we love and accept all their behavior. Right. And just point of fact, guys, love is is transformative. Mm -hmm. It it, it always is. And so when God steps into Manoah's world, and, and stands it on its head, he's got to transform Manoak from being someone who's just kind of getting by and surviving and into someone who's actively going to become a worshiper of God. Mm-hmm. And so, and what's interesting to me throughout this, this narrative, Mrs. Manoak, she already knows. Mm-hmm. She already gets it. And she's the one who's willing to listen and to obey. And I think that's why she was the one the angel's talking to mm-hmm. and not the husband so you know she's she's got a place of of great importance despite the fact that she doesn't have a name Mm -hmm. and so there there's a lesson in that as far as sometimes the most important people are often nameless and anonymous in our in our lives so Mm -hmm. um yeah that's i mean we can hold there for a moment if we need to and
1: yeah we probably should uh I've got more. I should carry this over. I mean, how many? Well, how many more pages? No, yet? I've got several more pages. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah we'll, we'll come back. So, I think that's a good place to to pause because I think the next thing we're going to talk about, if I'm right, is going to take a long time. Uh, possibly. So, anyway, <laughs> some of some of the great faith in me. Theology, so, <laughs> all right. Well, that being said, everyone, come back next week for the uh, conclusion.
2: Just see what see what's notes. in the notes
1: that Emily just dropped. <laughs> um if you like what you've heard um please like and share uh if you're watching on youtube uh hit us up on facebook twitter and instagram if you want to be part of the conversation um at Raven Creek sc that's our handle there ravencreeksc.com can get you to all those places also gets you to uh show notes and companion posts on our on our website and uh yeah So we're glad to be here. We're glad to have you and we hope to see you next week or I hope you see us next week. We won't see you. That's kind of a, (laughs) that's not how cameras work. So anyway, we will, uh, we'll be back next time. Have a great one. Bye. Bye.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening
1: and don't forget to join us next week.